Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Stinger, welcome to 10% True. Thanks. Amazing to be here. Thank you for coming. We, we, so yeah. we're going to do this uh, slightly differently from the, the usual interviews that I do. So normally we'll, we'll start with the chronological order of things because that's how my ordered mind works. Um, but we're going to actually just talk about a particular deployment that you did to uh, Syria and Iraq and in 2017. But just for everybody's understanding, you're a strike eagle pilot. You're currently serving in the U.S. Air Force. Um, and you are a bit of a, a rarity because you are somebody who was also a wizard. So you joined the Air Force in, as a navigator, as a weapon systems officer, and then you converted to the, to the front seat of the strike eagle. Um, but we will come back uh, and we'll do a separate interview around your experiences around um, you know the development of the strike or the the maturing of the strike eagle over the last sort of five or ten or fifteen years and, and see how the airplanes changed um, and, and talk more broadly about your experiences in the air force later. So Syria, Iraq, two thousand seventeen. Um, I'm keen to know what your um, your build up was or what your work up was to deploying um, out out to the that theater of operations um, what, what sort of things are you preparing for what uh, training do you do how is it different from any other um, week or month of um, of flying the strike eagle well um, one thing that we did was receive pretty regular intel updates about what was happening uh, overall in there and um, we use those Intel updates to kind of form a frame of reference about what mission sets we were likely to have and what the other Strike Eagle squadron uh, from Mountain Home was doing that we were going to rip out. Um, and so we set up scenarios based around that. Uh, and we focused on a lot of technical skill sets that we would need going out the door. Um, and then what kind of weapons we would likely have, how we were working those, and then the specific units that we would be working with. Uh, we tried to find like units around uh, England at the time because I was at Lake and Heath um, to use uh, to be able to simulate that and uh, start creating those scenarios. The other thing we did was really dive into uh, the spins or special instructions uh, for the AOR or the area responsibility and decide um, what we needed to know from a legal standpoint and from an overall mission objective standpoint um, that was going to sort of bound our employment, uh, you know, left and right, as it were. Um, so all those things, all the patches or the weapon school officers in our squadron um, kind of formed a training plan and then spun us up uh, for that. And it, it was about a six month spin up uh, overall. And um, I remember one of the things was we, we would see what strikes were happening down there and um, 
I was always worried that we weren't going to be able to drop any bombs when we got there because all the bombs were going to be, you know, dropped and stuff because it just sounded like they were doing a lot of work. So um, we were anticipating not really getting any work uh, once we got down there and come to find out to be completely the opposite. Um, so, uh, so that was good. So hopefully that answers the question a little bit, maybe. Yeah, it's, it's, I think that's a, there's, there's a bunch of different things that you could sort of break down in, in that answer. I mean, one of the things that I think probably most people don't really realize, and you, you mentioned it really briefly, was the, the sort of legal point of view or the legal standpoint. Um, obviously, you're bound by rules of engagement, ROE. Um, typically, they're classified, so I want to ask you to tell me what they were, but um, that's, a, that's a legal obligation, isn't it? Um, how big a deal is that? How, how well do you have to know it? How are you tested? Well, you're, I mean, I guess you could say your life depends on it, whether it's going to be your career depends on it or uh, another American's life depends on it. And the easy thing to do in combat is not to do anything, um, to take inaction. And you're there to take action. Um, so it's kind of the difference between saving an American life or saving a coalition life versus not saving it. In order to be able to save those lives, what you have to do is understand how to employ your weapons in accordance with the theater guidance. Um, and that, that also allows you know, the commanders to be able to uh, progress uh, on a strategic level as well. Um, because if you start operating outside of the rules of engagement, then a lot of times you're kind of you're taking away from the overall um, strategic progress, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, there's probably a lot better way to say that and break that down, but uh, I'll leave it at that. Um, so the uh, authorization, the authorized use of military force, the AUMF, covered exactly who we were fighting, uh, who was going to be designated hostile. And then we had to figure out, OK, well, we have all these other peripheral players there. We had Russia, Iran, et cetera, uh, and Syria. Um, how are we going to deal with those players uh, while we're doing our own mission sets against ISIS, um, you know, overall, and then how are we going to help uh, the Iraqis be able to retake Mosul and all this sort of other stuff. And then, uh, uh, yeah, deal with all the other peripheral players uh, at the same time. So those lines get kind of, they get kind of gray and they frequently change, but uh, especially as air crew, when you're at the front of the, you're one of the decision makers, I would say, on the tactical level of uh, employing your weapon or having a lasting effect on what's going to happen. You you have to know what the left and right bounds are, and those are ultimately found in the ROE. So you have to study those, and you have to know those uh, pretty cold for sure. So do you do you actually get a, a, a written exam or some or a, a sort of oral exam where you, you, you you know if you don't pass, you're not allowed to go or you're not allowed to to fly? Uh, we, we actually did have to take a test, uh, uh, kind of like a spins test. Um, so the special instructions, how would you handle this situation, this situation, et cetera. It, it was a little bit more on an academic level and obviously, uh, our answers would later change, but, um, uh, you know, everybody who was going on that deployment passed because everybody took it very seriously and studied up. And then we had, um, you know, we had good instruction from all of our patches at the time, uh, as well. So. It's it's a bit of an odd direction to take the uh, the conversation straight away, but uh, yeah, we're, sure. we're here, so why not? Um, are you personally responsible? Then are you going to go to jail if you drop on something you shouldn't have? Um, what what is the sense amongst you know the the guys and girls who go out and fly these missions about 
you know who's got their back and 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 what responsibility they have um that's a pretty complicated answer uh, to that so i'll try my best to to see what i can uh bring out of that so um as far as going to jail or being responsible, there, there is a negligence factor that you can have. Um, and that's more willful negligence on, you know, definitely not executing in accordance with the spins, knowing that you're not executing in accordance with the ROE, et cetera, et cetera. And then, uh, you know, but there could be other actions where you either get, um, you get what's called a Q3, uh, you know, uh, which is pretty bad for your flying career. <laughs> at least. Um, and you can get sent home from the deployment. You can get, um, it, you can get all kinds of other things can happen. Um, the worst, I think thing that could happen would be that you have a, uh, what we'd call a four letter F or a frat, uh, where you drop, uh, on a U.S. position because you didn't have, um, you didn't have full situational awareness about what was going on, or there was some weird ROE thing where, you know, you didn't quite have everything that was going on, um, all squared away. So, there's that. Um, but I, I will say though, that the, particularly the CFAC while we were deployed, General Harrigian was just incredible about, um, I thought he was really good about giving, uh, pilots, uh, and WIZOs or aircrew the, uh, backing and the knowledge, giving them the knowledge first, uh, trusting in their abilities and then backing them up, uh, to the max extent that he possibly could. Um, so he, he was, I always felt like, uh, general Harrigan had our back at least. Um, now that there are some, maybe some question marks, you know, rotating in, in between that line. But I was, I always felt like at the top general Harrigan had our back, um, overall. So going back then to, to the, to the workup or the, or the buildup, um, you mentioned you, you would look around the UK for other other units that were similar to the ones that were out there. Um, can you expand on that a little bit? What, what would you be doing with them? Are you talking about working with soldiers or infantry on the ground? Is that sort of thing you're talking about? Uh, yeah, exactly. We would do uh, close air support with some of the special forces units that are looming around the UK, whether it was the SAS or um, there was an ASOC um, or there was a... Um, some American uh, joint terminal air controllers that we would work with, uh, or we would work with uh, some guys from the SAS or whatever, and we would get a lay of the land. And uh, some of those guys would go into theater uh, with us um, kind of on that same rotation and stuff. So um, we would mostly uh, revolve the mission set around close air support, but uh, Syria was a little unique um, for a number of reasons where you would do close air support, but you would also have to do defensive counter air at the same time. Um, so you're dealing with an air threat actually, uh, from peripheral players that had a whole different, um, kind of whole different way that you would have to handle that, um, that you would not normally handle a defensive counter air. Um, and you'd have to integrate close air support at the same time. So, we formed a really good relationship with the guys on the ground to be able to feed them situational awareness. And then they would feed us situational awareness about, uh, everything that was going on. So what, uh, so, so DCA defensive counter, then that the objective is to stop somebody else from harming or threatening your allies on the ground. Is that what it is? That's right. Uh, normally you have a, uh, defended asset, uh, whether it's a, a group of people or, uh, some type of material, um, and you would want to defend that from an aerial attack. 
Um, aerial attack could be anything from, you know, aircraft dropping bombs to cruise missiles to whatever it is. Uh, so the, there's a wide breadth of things that can, you know, attack from the air drones. <laughs> so we'll get into then who the players were in, in a bit. Um, but just going back then to the, the mission sets and, and the things that you were doing. So the, the Strike Eagle is a multi-role fighter, as, as most people will know it. You know, I think the expression is, it you know, shoots down what's up and blows up what's down. Um, so, so, you know, it's good at dropping bombs and, and, and shooting down other airplanes. But um, was there was the work up then therefore that different in terms of the types of missions you were flying um, than you would normally exper- exper- expect or experience uh, as sort of a, a Strike Eagle pilot? Was it just the people you were working with who were different or, or did you start dropping certain mission sets and, and not practicing those before you went out there? Um, not really. I think we did a pretty good spin up. Um, actually, almost every mission that the Strike Eagle does we had an opportunity to do uh, almost. Yeah. I would say with a couple, with a couple caveats here and there, um, and you always had to be ready for, you know, BFM or ACM or close air support or, you know, or strikes, uh, deliberate strikes. Um, even we even did a, uh, a combat search and rescue. Uh, so th- there's a whole wide range of stuff and uh, what it really comes down to a lot of a lot of people like to say you know jack of all trades master of none but at the same time i feel like the the spin-up what it allowed us to do is get really familiar with um or proficient rather with uh the airframe itself how to employ the airframe and once we got proficient with all the basics around how to employ the airframe a lot of the other mission sets because they were changing so fast, were a little bit easier to uh, develop real time. So the purpose of the spin-up was really to to make you proficient at employing the Strike Eagle in some somehow. Um, so whether it's dropping one kind of bomb or a different kind of bomb, it didn't really matter. You know, we were pretty proficient, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I mean, is is it? Uh, I, I'm 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 inferring then that. The aeroplane, it can do a great many things, and there's just no way you can be good at doing all those things at one time. So you have to sort of maybe dust off the cob- cobwebs of a particular set of knowledge or, or, or sort of muscle built some muscle memory in something you haven't done for a while. Um, and, and you were therefore sort of tuning that process in, in, in the lead up to, to deploying. Yeah, it, you're exactly right. Um, there are some skill sets that you start to lose over time. If you only focus on air-to-air stuff, your cast employment or your close air support employment is probably going to suffer um, in that case. And you're going to suffer with being able to understand what's happening on the ground uh, and then how best to support the guys on the ground and then how to execute uh, specific attacks, whether we're doing what they call 30-20 dive glides with GBU-12s, uh, which is a 500-pound laser-guided weapon, or you're doing, you know, a double down or dropping two different types of weapons at the same time, multiple DPIs. There's all sorts of stuff that you can get less proficient at over time because you have a less of a currency factor with it, you know. And the same thing goes with air to air. If you're doing air to air all the time, uh, then you're going to be pretty proficient at it. Um, so th- it's hard to draw a line of when are you good enough, proficient, you know, uh, and 
And that's another thing that's a little bit hard about training scenarios is that sometimes the real life scenarios change so much that uh, what you presume to be how you're going to tactically execute is going to change as well. Uh, we, as a squadron, learned a ton of things in Syria that made a lot of our previous tactics and stuff that we trained to irrelevant for the most part. Uh, or it was just not never based in like a good context. It was always uh, what we were training to was always the, um, you know, the red flag war or the what we call the knitter war in the Nellis Tesson training range of, you know, perfectly linear war where decisions are already pretty much made for you. And all you have to do is do your little technical skill set well. And there's no hard problems to solve. It's all just, you know, everybody shoots at each other and then goes back to the bar and looks it up. Uh, whereas when you get into a real dynamic environment where you don't know everything that's happening and part of your problem is gaining situational awareness and then understanding ROE and understanding uh, what your strategic objectives are and then how to not uh, take away from those, I guess you could say, um, overall. And, and, and how to build your corporate knowledge over time. That, that was kind of the other thing. Uh, so, so there's a lot of difficulties there, but I felt like our patches did a pretty good job of preparing us uh, for all those unknowns the best way that they could with the limited amount of knowledge they had about what, uh, what we would do, um, overall. You've obviously, um, already mentioned, uh, ISIS, um, that being sort of the main, the main opponent, the main threat, um, a group of individuals who you know, sort of were brutal in the way they treated people. And I ask this question a lot when I, when I talk to, uh, sort of guys who uh, who are going to go out and, and potentially be shot down and have to sort of you know escape and evade and all that stuff. Um, how did you deal with uh, any emotions that may have come out of of thinking about who you're going up against and what might happen to you? Um, I, I remember you know talking to a mutual friend of ours who said before he went out to um, Iraq and Afghanistan, the SAS turned up at the squadron and gave them a briefing on some techniques they could use to, to get out of handcuffs and stuff like that. But they, the guys said to them, um, basically you're going to end up starring in your own internet movie. Um, <laughs> how did you, how did you, how did you deal with those thoughts? Or do you, I mean, do you push them out? Do you allow them in? What, what, what do you do? Um, I think it's, well, at least for me, I can't speak for everybody, obviously, but for me, it was emotionally, I think walking out the door, it, there were a lot of unknowns, you know, I, you don't know what is going to happen. And then we, you know, we had seen that guy, the Jordanian, um, uh, F 16 pilot, the video of him. Uh, so that was real, but at the same time, I don't know that anybody ever honestly believed that it was going to happen to them, you know, like they were going to die. And it's this sort of naive, uh, I, I don't know. It just, it's kind of like when you go drive your car, you don't really believe you're going to get into an accident, you know? Um, so you don't really think about it too much. You just focus on the mission that has to be done and then you go out there and then you do it. Um, and we even, you know, saw quite a bit of AAA, uh, and stuff. And we, I remember looking down at AAA that was being shot at us and thinking, uh, Oh, that's pretty cool. That's what AAA looks like, you know, and not really thinking that, you know, it, it could be harmful at all. And and that was my own naive, you know, belief, but it's just one of those things where you're not, I don't know if you fully embrace the danger that you're in while you're in it. Um, but to answer your, 
question a little bit better. When you when we were walking out the door, um, I think we were way more concerned about how do I perform well, uh, and then how do I execute well, and make sure that you know I don't want to be the limb factor or the limiting factor for my squadron. You know, I want to be able to do everything that I can to the best. And especially when you start working with some special forces guys here and there and stuff, your reputation as a squadron matters a lot. And you don't want to be the guy who messes that up for the rest of your bros uh, by doing something dumb. And so we were very, very focused on how do we be proficient? How, you know, we're going to deal with stuff when we see it, et cetera. And I think a lot, a lot of people shared that and not a lot of people really believe that you know, they were going to get um, shot down. Now, granted, it wasn't like a scenario where your intel officer, your squadron commander says, hey, listen, we're going to, intel tells us we're going to take 50% losses. You know, <laughs> we're sending the unmarried folks out first and, the you know, married folks are standing, you know, like it, it wasn't one of those things for sure. But um, but who, seeing the video of the Jordanian and, and everything like it, you know, and when you're looking down, you know, you're flying over the jet and you're looking down and you're like, you know, that's, you know, if we go down for whatever reason, like that's, uh, that's not very friendly territory down there, you know? So, uh, you, you're gonna have to figure out, you know, what to do. And, and we spent, you know, a decent amount of time going over, you know, escape and evasion stuff and all kinds of other seer related deals and, and, and kind of knowing the land and knowing what, what you would do and where you put your aircraft down and, you know, how to, how to try to get the cavalry there as fast as possible and stuff. So, um, but ho- hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, I think uh, everybody s- seems to have a, a similar sort of approach to it, which is the, you know, it can't happen to me type of thing. And maybe that's just a, a component of being in the fast jet world that, uh, you know, you, you see friends die in training or, you know, all, all, well, not all the time, but enough that it, um, you know, you must have to deal with it. You have to, have to develop some coping mechanisms and, and, and deal with it. But I, I suppose I think a little bit about the, the strike eagle crew over Libya. Who um, did they have a stab failure, or or was he asymmetric or something? And they, and and he, the airplane went into a spin, and they had to eject. And um, and I just wonder whether or not those things actually sort of, as you get closer to deploying, those things creep further and further into your mind. And um, I'm really interested that you watch the video, the, the Jordanian um, S16 pilot video. I mean, that's a, I I didn't watch it. I you know I saw some freeze frames of it I, ne- I i never had the um uh the the strength of character to watch that um but yeah i, I think it, it's just a it's just interesting to hear how people are going to go into you know exceptionally serious exceptionally dangerous uh situations how, how they deal with that so yeah the, the one thing you brought up about the guys who went down over libya um and they obviously weren't shot down um so you know there's some asymmetry there uh, with the jet and one of the things that we were worried about as well walking in it was um, you're, you get so focused on the tactical situation sometimes. I'm not saying this was the case in Libya, but um, you get so focused on this tactical situation at times that you start losing, you know, or you're, yeah, you, you stop focusing so much on flying the airplane or flying a safe jet or, you know, you might overfly your bingo fuel to get back. You know, there's all kinds of stuff you, you know, we, uh, we had a couple of times where, you know, guys were so involved in the tactical scenario of supporting a troops in contact that they would overfly their bingo fuel to get back and, you know, barely make it back. And it was, you know, 
things like that can, I think, kill you just as easy as, you know, not seeing a missile launcher, whatever. Um, so you have to be quite mindful of that and make sure that all the basics in your aircraft and how you manage the systems and the normal systems that are going to keep you alive. Um, you still have to do that as well. In addition to employing your aircraft tactically. So we didn't want to let that, uh, fall off our radar, uh, as it were. So we, we hard crewed, uh, leading up to the deployment. Did you always have the same pilot? Uh, I did not. Okay. That was a, that was just for you or the squad. That was a squadron choice. Then you, you would just go with whoever. Yeah. So the current kind of the crews, how they worked, um, everybody obviously knew each other and flew with, I mean, we flew with everybody in the squadron all the time and everybody had a really good working relationship with each other. Um, but when we got downrange, normally they would take you into like a, uh, kind of like a go or we, we were turning a bunch of lines all the time, but within about four or five hours, um, a block of takeoffs and, you would be with this, maybe the same three pilots uh, if you're a Wizzo and if you're pilot three Wizzos um, throughout that, throughout for about the first like three months or so. And then we swapped uh, and then you would be with, you know, somebody else and they try to try to do, okay, we're going to put, you know, the number one jet's going to have two experienced guys uh, in both seats. And then we're going to put the two inexperienced guys in the, um, number two jet, or sometimes they would swap it around to where you wanted, um, you know, your one Bravo to be very experienced and your one alpha to be a new flight lead. So he could get experience being a flight lead and vice versa. Um, and then start building, slowly building the experience of the squadron, uh, through creative ways with scheduling. Um, so that's kind of what happened at least for us. And it ended up working out really, really well. Uh, I thought so. Talking then about um, the different ways you could kill yourself in, in terms of, you know, overflying bingo and bingo is just the, you know, a, a preset amount of fuel you need to get back home, right? Um, that, that kind of thing, flying a safe jet, as you, as you said. Does having, uh, so as from, from a pilot's point of view uh, or from a wizard's point of view, does having another person in the aeroplane actually complicate that or does it make it easier? Um, <laughs> like all things, it depends. Um, it definitely depends on who you're flying with. Um, so whether you're getting along well with the person in the front seat or the back seat, um, really, I think, uh, was a huge factor in whether or not things would get out of hand really quick because different people have different tolerances for what they can, you know, where are you going to set your bingo at? Okay. I'm going to set it super conservative. So we have a shit ton of fuel when we land or, you know, I'm going to be right up into the edge so we can maximize, you know, as much uh, support for the ground guys as possible and, and stuff. So it, we would run into a few, I don't know, kerfluffles about that, <laughs> uh, between guys about, you know, how they wanted to manage, uh, what their idea of, of being, um, you know, safe was, but, yeah, I think at the end, at least within a probably in about two months, in everybody had kind of a good. Uh, everybody was comfortable with each other about what they were willing to do, and sometimes it was weather related too um, about whether you're willing to do, you know, cast and weather or what justified a um, what justified some of the different types of employments and how fast you're doing an employment. Um, cause one of the unique things about the strike Eagle is that obviously it has two crew members, um, which can be, you know, exceptional in close air support. If you have 
uh, one guy who's gathering all this uh, situational awareness, and um, especially if there's an air component going on, maybe the front seater is has his air to air radar and has situational awareness on you know flankers that are really close or Su 22s or you know whatever it is, and so he knows what's going on, and then. The guy on the, uh, in the backseat knows what's going on on the ground and all these movements and updating friendly positions and uh, where the bad guys are and all this sort of stuff. So you can kind of um, get in sync with each other on that. And sometimes the, the problems, at least from the backseat perspective, was bringing the pilot up to speed uh, fast if it was a time-critical situation. So if it was a troops in contact uh, and the front seater wasn't necessarily paying attention not that they weren't paying attention, but if they were doing other things and didn't have a hundred percent essay on, uh, yeah, the friendlies are danger close, but they're, you know, a hundred meters away here and they're, you know, prone position in this building. And this is the plan with this, you know, GB 38, um, uh, that we're going to drop and we need to drop it like right now, you know, we've already done BOC read back all this stuff. And, uh, the frontier would be like, whoa, 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 wait, wait. Okay. I just need to figure out, wait, just tell me, okay, where are they at now? You know, and then you, you spend like, you know, two or three minutes trying to catch somebody up, uh, to a situation that was like consistently evolving and they're taking fire and stuff. And you're trying to drop as fast as possible. Um, so in that way, um, you would run into a little bit more of a, uh, delay and it could be complicated, but it really depended on who you're flying with and then how much you trusted each other. Um, at least more towards the end of our deployment was when, um, the Wizos were really proficient at casts and they had everything doped out pretty much all the time. And so the pilots could trust them, um, that they weren't going to, you know, drop on a friendly position or do anything, you know, crazy. Um, and we had a really good, we had really good success overall with our squadron as far as that goes. Um, and we really didn't have any mess ups, um, that some units have and, Anyways, I know that was a really kind of convoluted way to talk about all that, but um, the two seat jet definitely had its advantages, um, and that. But sometimes uh, having an extra person who wasn't one hundred percent on board with what was going on was you know, you're trying to bring him back in, and and that went from for both sides uh, as well. So sometimes a pilot would have more essay than the Wizzo did about everything that was going on because he's looking outside, you know, the whole entire time and the wizard staring into the targeting pod and he doesn't really see that, you know, there's a vehicle born ID on the move here, you know, it was a very dynamic situation. So, um, it was an art form to get everybody's essay and then use that to kind of, um, synergize together, you know, and make two plus two equal five in that case. So does that suggest then that the, the front seater has the final, you know, is the final arbiter of, of whether uh, munitions are released from the airplane. Yeah. So typically the way it works is that the front seater will press the pickle button to drop the ordinance. Uh, and then the Wizzo will give him a clear to release call. Uh, and that, what that does is that's our tactical crew coordination that allows you to, um, so the Wizzo is normally responsible with targeting stuff. So putting, um, getting a designation with the sniper pod or the radar or whatever it is, putting that designation into the weapon uh, and then affirming that, yes, this is definitely something that I want to drop a bomb on. And then the pilot is kind of the other uh, check there to say he QCs uh, what he needs to do with this thing. We have called a PAX uh, program, which controls the armament system. Uh, Make sure that we're dropping the right weapon. Um, You know, the right fusing is set, whether you want to do a, 
five millisecond delay into a building or a, you know, 85 degree impact angle and stuff. So quickly QC that. Yep. Okay. That's good. And then, you know, double check the nine line, just that, you know, everything check and there's a Sandy check. Uh, and then we're not, um, our run in heading doesn't coincide with like where the friendlies are to where if uh, we had a fin failure for a weapon, you know, we hit a friendly position. So the pilot's doing a lot of that. The wizard's making sure that the bomb's good to go. And then, or multiple bombs because we can do multiple DPIs per pass, and then you'll get a clear to release from the back seat, and then the pilot will own the pickle button uh, for the actual release. So it, the pickle button for air to ground is hot in both uh, seats. So technically, if the master arm is hot and you're in air to ground mode, then uh, the back seater can press the pickle button as well, and the weapon can come off. But that's not our normal. Uh, that's not the normal way that we do it. We'll, we'll talk a, a little bit more about striking capabilities, hopefully, um, at, you know, at the public domain level um, in, in the next interview. But um, you mentioned DPI a couple of times, so that's desired point of impact. And, and that's a change, isn't it, from it used to be DIMPY, desired mean point of impact. Um, what does that say then, that nomenclature change? What does that say about your confidence in your ability to hit the target? Um, and can you talk a little bit about some of the weapons that you were going to go out, to, that you went out to Syria and, and, and dropped? Yeah, sure. Uh, so the difference between DIPI and DPI, at least as far as I know, is uh, if you're dropping smart weapons and something that can actually hit a point uh, with no problem and you're not worried about um, 3.9 error or you know 6.12 error uh, based on your release uh, where you have the jet, um, then uh, you're going to do a desired point of impact so you can actually hit that specific point. And uh, JDAMs uh, or the Joint Direct Attack Munition um, is a tail kit that goes on a variety of different um, uh, bomb bodies. So uh, most common were the Mark 82 bomb bodies, which are a 500-pound class weapon. Uh, we would put a GBU-38 kit, uh, a JDM kit, uh, on the back of those. and then Or you could do a GBU-54 kit, which was a uh, laser-guided uh, JDM. So you'd have a laser seeker in the front and a GPS kit in the back. And uh, you could either laser target if you wanted to, and they would hit the laser spot, or you could drop it just like a GB38 with coordinates already in the weapon. Um, and then, so that would cover kind of the 500 pound class weapons. And then you had uh, another bomb body called a uh, Mark 84, which is a 2000 pound class uh, weapon. And then we had a GB31 uh, JDM kit for that. Um, if we wanted more penetrating effects, uh, we have this thing called a Blue 109 body bomb body, uh, which is a um, a bomb case that is a lot better for penetrating into, you know, concrete or hardened buildings, etc. cetera. Uh, and it has a little bit different amount of explosives and it's shaped slightly differently, uh, but it actually will use a GB31 kit as well. Um, and we call that the GB31 V3. Um, so all of those JDAMs that we were using had a uh, joint programmable fuse. Um, so we could dial in the cockpit, whether we wanted a five millisecond delay, a 15 millisecond delay, 35 millisecond delay, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then we could just decide which uh, we wanted for that. And the other thing about JDAM is that you can control the impact angle uh, that you want the bomb to fly in at. So um, if for some reason 
you know, you, you really want it to be as accurate as possible. You're going to want the flight path angle to be as steep as possible. So you can go up to 90 degrees for that. Um, and that eliminates a little bit of that 612 error uh, for your coordinate source uh, as well. I don't want to, I know I'm probably nerding out too much now, but uh, <laughs> if, if you have, I, I can, I can talk all day about uh, all this nerdy stuff when it comes to how to make a gravity bomb hit what you want. But <laughs> this is yeah. good. It's educational. Yeah. So, so, so you're talking. So, sort of a, a, a six a, a six twelve error is is too far or too short. Mm-hmm. You're talking about clock face, um, right? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what about uh, small diameter bomb? Did you have that? Yeah, uh, we dropped a lot of those. Uh, so the SDB, uh, as we call it, uh, small diameter bomb. Uh, small diameter bomb one now because there's a two uh, out there um, and the one is super it's pretty simple I mean it's GPS guided only um, where the JDAMs have a they're not reliant on GPS completely they have a uh, a little IMU in them or a, they have an INS essentially inertial navigation system uh, in there and if you don't have GPS satellites <clears throat> the INS will still try to attempt to hit the point Um in a JDAM, uh, whereas the GB39s are a little bit different. Really, they're they're a glide bomb. Uh, so when you drop them, they have these little wings that fold out, and they're 250 pound class weapon. I think they have maybe 54 pounds of AFX 757. This really cool explosive in it, 57 pounds or 54 pounds, I can't remember. Um, but anyways, it's kind of a small amount of explosive, and it's a special explosive where you have tritonol and some of the other like Mark A2 cases. You have AFX M57 in this uh, STB in it. Super cool bomb uh, from that perspective. And because it, all these wings fold out, you can drop it from a really far ways away. And it'll start flying its own L over D max profile. And it'll you know, fly to the target and it'll go down. And you can, again, you can control the fusing as this ESAF fuse. Um, you control the fusing in the cockpit. Uh, impact angle. You can actually even tell it what heading you want it to fly into the target at, which is kind of cool. Um, so we use those, uh, and they fall out of what's called a brew 61 for us, uh, which holds four, uh, of these 250 pound, uh, class weapons. Uh, and so we can put that on one station that a 2000 pound weapon would occupy, uh, in that case. Um, so that's, that was kind of cool, um, overall, but we did run in a little bit of reliability problems with the brew 61s, the actual bomb release unit, um, whether I, I'm not really sure why they were not working for us, but occasionally we would have some of the, the ones that were on the aft uh, stations of the jet uh, not work really that well. So um, eventually I think they got it uh, squared away and fixed, but it was not uncommon to have a rack that you couldn't use. Hmm. Am, I, am I right in thinking, I mean, you mentioned the L over D that's the lift over drag um, mm-hmm. profile. So it would fly the, the most efficient profile. I think that that means to, to the target. Am I right in thinking that, within the bounds of, of sort of the, the, the latest you could get it to go there, you could actually, um, you could tell it what time you wanted to impact the target. So you could make it fly a, a less efficient profile to get there more quickly. Is that correct or not? Uh, I mean, that sounds plausible, but I don't think we have those capabilities right now, unless there's something that I'm, I'm not familiar with. Um, the only way we would do uh, TOT specifically with that weapon, and that weapon's actually really hard to do uh, TOTs with because 
sometimes it does whatever it wants to do and it's hard to judge uh, wins uh, exactly like wins at all levels and all this sort of stuff. If it, you know, once it go down a thousand feet and the wind changes by three knots or, you know, whatever. But what we try to do is we have a, um, a time uh, in the jet that'll show us approximately um, when we could release to be able to hit a TOT uh, with the weapon. Um, now that that's not, 100% accurate with SDBs, um, but you can plan. We have a system, joint mission planning system, where theoretically you could put in all the variables and plan a TOT. You would just have to get the jet to a very specific point in time and then press the pickle button. You can't necessarily program the SDB to hit at a TOT. Uh, that would be a great feature to have, um, I think. I think it'd be pretty cool, but it doesn't not on STB one at least, and I'm not full up on STB two yet. We're, we're just getting the, uh, I think we're just about to get the software for those. So I haven't had a chance to mess around with them too much. So let's talk then, uh, about going out there. You said you were getting these regular Intel updates. Um, there were, um, other guys out there who, who are you going to go out there? Who were, who were going to be the friendlies? You talked about this list of, you know, who's, who's the most friendly, which, which nations are going to be the most important that you're friends with and, and the least important. Um, what did it look like? I think the Brits were at the top, right? <laughs> uh, the, all the coalition, obviously we were, you know, that's, those were all of our, buddies going out there and, and we were very focused on the same, uh, task at hand. Uh, obviously Iraq, uh, as the host country for, um, what we needed to do as far as stability work, uh, in Mosul and, uh, they were helping us out of our as well. Um, so we worked with them, uh, whether it was the Iraqi federal police, their counterterrorism, you know, the Iraqi army, etc. cetera. Uh, there's a couple different variant, uh, couple different units associated with the uh, Iraqis that were doing some really good work out there and, uh, extremely brave, um, people, uh, I would say for sure, uh, to the North. So around the Raqqa area, we had, uh, the SDF, um, which was a pretty brave group of people, uh, overall. And then they had different, uh, they were made up of a few different, uh, I guess, uh, interest groups, as it were, within the SDF. Uh, then down in the south, uh, there was a group called the MAT um, that uh, some of the uh, ODAs or some of the Green Berets down there were working with, um, and they were working on trying to you know, fight ISIS as much as they could uh, down there. And so the SDF were kind of our primary guys in Syria, and then the Iraqi uh, federal police, the Iraqi army, et cetera, were the primary guys in Iraq that we were supporting peripheral to it all. Uh, there was some Iranian elements. So there was these PMFs out there, the popular mobilization unit or popular mobilization forces. Um, and they were not, uh, they were fighting ISIS, but they were not necessarily super friendly to the U S you know? <laughs> uh, and it, yeah, it, it, nobody was really sure what was what they were going after, but they were another group out there that had their own uh, interests, um, to put it as best I can. Um, and then 
you had the Syrian regime, obviously the Syrian regime was fighting ISIS. Um, and we ran into a few, uh, scuffles with the Syrian regime as well. Um, and then you had the rebels, uh, Syrian rebels who were fighting the Syrian regime. And then Turkey was involved up to the North and they were supporting a variety of players. And they had, it, it was, a there's a, a lot of different people out there. And then of course you had the Russians um, and the Russians were obviously supporting um, Syria or the Assad regime. So they were anti-rebel, anti-ISIS uh, and they were trying to hold Syrian territory to the max extent that they could. And then uh, later on we had the Wagner group, which was uh, Russian mercenaries who were there for some commercial interests. And so it, it was a, uh, it was a lot of a lot of people with a lot of different agendas out there. <laughs> Can you talk a little about the initial days or weeks then of of having deployed? I, I don't know if you're allowed to say where you went to, but uh, it doesn't matter if you can't. Um, but you presumably don't just land and then start flying combat missions. Is there a sort of a period of um, local area checkout, the equivalent of um, you know, sort of a handover with the the units there already? How do you actually ease yourself into going out and flying combat? So for us, it was actually, we hit the ground running. <laughs> oh. uh, normally you get, uh, so normally how it works in a rotation, at least when you know that you're going to deploy and everything is very predictable, um, you'll send a group of guys to fly with the squadron that's already there and they'll get kind of the lay of the land and know how to, you know, who all the major agencies you're going to talk to, how the normal flows work, how to check in and out of the airspace and what JTACs to talk to and where they're operating and what's going on. And they'll gather all this uh, gouge for you. And then once you actually get to the base, um, then they'll give you a couple briefs on, okay, when you go out there, you know, this is the agency you're going to talk to. They're controlling this, that, you know, this is how you normally exit, you know, this is how, you know, these are where the tanker tracks are. This is what you can expect for gas, all the, all the admin piece of it, you know, and some of the tactics as well. When we landed there though, they pretty much put us into uh, crew rest immediately and told us that we we're going to start flying a defensive counter air on the base that we were at uh, because they were pushing cruise missiles into Syria so it was going to be a big deal. And then, you know, there's always a potential of these short range ballistic missiles to come, uh, you know, over and hit your base. But, um, so it was kind of a, you know, very, okay, dudes, like we're going to load up with this loadout that everybody in the basic course said, you're never going to fly with ever, you know, uh, and, you know, go out there and just, you know, wall to wall with AMRAMs and you're just going to do DCA, you know, whatever. And so, um, so it's kind of cool uh, to, to start like that. And then um, we, so the actual first uh, combat mission that I personally flew um, was a, ended up being a troops in contact. Um, so it was a very strange troops in contact that we got. And it was in a very strange location and there was a weather deck uh, on there. So you couldn't see the ground and, I was talking to this JTAC and, or he was at, yeah, he was a, he was JTAC qualified. And he said, um, Hey, can you throw a 54 down here and prox fuse it for this troops in contact, which is normally if you proximity fuse something, you're going to blow up a lot 
you know, with it. Cause it's going to, it's going to, um, nothing is going to mitigate that explosion. Uh, so, I mean, it's a crowd pleaser for sure when you do that, but at the same time, it's like, and you can't see what you're dropping on. So he gives us a, a bomb on coordinate grid, which is read back these coordinates, put it in. He tells us he's going to uh, ground laser it. So he's going to laser it in from the ground because we can't drop under this weather deck and be able to drop the bomb and the bomb be able to see the laser and all this sort of stuff. Um, so it was, it happened super fast and he's just like, yep, going to need one of these GB 54s. Okay, cool. You know, we get everything doped out and then call in, he clears this hot, we drop, uh, then, you know, good effects, you know, and then it was a bunch of EKIA right off the bat and he wanted another one. We did the same thing again. Um, which our, uh, our wingman did. And then, uh, and then that was it. It was, we went and dropped some more bombs on some, um, uh, DT taskings or dynamic target taskings, uh, which were a little bit more static, uh, despite the name dynamic targeting. Uh, but, but yeah, so it was a troops in contact and it was just happened super fast. And I, I never saw on the ground exactly what happened because it, we saw the blast, uh, come up like kind of through the clouds a little bit. And then that was, that was it. So, uh, and then landed back. And then the second, uh, combat mission, we did was pretty, I thought it was kind of memorable. It was to Mosul. Um, the, that other one was in Syria. The second one was to Mosul. And I remember, um, uh, flying. It was the first time I'd ever seen Mosul, you know, in my life ever. And it was, I was looking at it and I was looking at it outside and I just saw this like black smoke, uh, coming up from everywhere. And we, uh, put in the radio frequency for the JTAC and we just heard, nine line after nine line after nine line. And he was just rattling them off and there was a tens in the stack and they were dropping. And it was just like, Holy shit. Uh, there's a lot going on and, you know, bombs were going off everywhere. And JTAC was super calm and cool. He was just like a, you know, like a orchestra, you know, <laughs> conductor, just, just kind of, you know, going through this, uh, symphony of effects as it were. And, um, I remember zooming my target pod into Mosul and I zoomed it on this road and it just so happened that I saw this bulldozer uh, pull out of this road and uh, probably about a hundred yards in front of them, some guy ran out to the street with an RPG and shot it at this bulldozer and the warhead bounced off the blade of the bulldozer. And this was just like your first glimpse into Mosul and it looked like something out of Call of Duty. You know, It was just like some some dude ran out with an RPG and shot it at a bulldozer and this guy in the bulldozer, for whatever reason, just kept on going straight. Like nothing was ever going to happen to him. Uh, and he was trying to, he was part of the Iraqi, uh, army and he was trying to clear the streets, uh, clear all these like, um, uh, cars that were in the middle of the road that were, uh, ISIS had set up his road, like literal roadblocks, uh, to their movement. And, uh, it, you know, we got a nine line immediately within, you know, 20 seconds of checking in, uh, where we just started dropping stuff and we cleaned off the jets and, uh, it was just one thing after just bam, 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 you know, and, uh, the JTACs were really good about what they wanted. And for me personally, it was a little bit of a catch up game of figuring out like, Whoa, this is the first time I've ever seen Mosul. I wish I was way more familiar with, uh, all these points of interest. And, you know, he was talking about, a targeting this courtyard and hey did you see that guy run into the you know you see this 
all this sort of movement that was going on. And, you know, I'm trying to play catch up with a target pot and figure out, okay, well, you know, I just got the grid. I just plotted the grid and then I zoomed it in. I don't see anything right now. And, you know, and uh, it was, it was a lot of craziness, but it was good because, um, that was an incredible learning, uh, opportunity, uh, for us, you know, to get in there and then just be, you know, hit the ground running. And then about the third sortie was also very memorable, uh, cause it was, it was to Mosul and it, we didn't drop, we didn't, uh, uh, have any nine lines when we entered It was pretty quiet, um, which is unusual at that time, uh, in Mosul cause usually everything was kicking off and, uh, the JTAC had me start doing this thing called non-traditional uh, ISR, non-traditional intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, which is just um, us scanning, you know, with a target pod and then looking for anything unusual and whatever he tells you to look for, you just try to look for it and go back and forth. And it's, it's a really long, tedious process. It's not very glamorous at all. But so he had me look at this neighborhood. He said, hey, listen, we got some refugees potentially running, you know, they're, they might be exiting this neighborhood. However, uh, we know that ISIS is, is, is in this neighborhood as well. Um, so just let us know what, you know, what all is going on and try to pick out whatever. So the JTAC got busy with another nine line that he was doing uh, with an A-10 and they were trying to do a target talk on. And I saw a garage door open, which is a super quiet neighborhood. Like nobody is there, you know. Um, so a garage door opens and out comes a minivan and it's a white minivan. I was like, huh. Like, this is pretty interesting. It's a white minivan. Maybe it's a refugee vehicle, but I looked at it and it was a little bit low, you know, to be a minivan, it'd be a normal. It was loaded up with something. Um, so I couldn't tell if it was up armored or not, uh, if it was a VBIT, but uh, based on, you know, because where we're at in the wheel uh, and then where our target pod is looking at, you're getting like some angles of it. So it drives out and I was like, I'm, man, I'm about 90% sure this is a VBID based on what it looks like. Um, but you don't want to be wrong about, you know, a refugee vehicle. <laughs> um, but I was, I was pretty sure, you know, and they say, well, you know, in your heart of hearts, do you think it's a, a vivid, you know, or, you know, we're, we're having this conversation in the Jeff for about a, no more than a split second. I was like, yep, it's a vivid, uh, you know, this is a third combat sortie or whatever. So I don't have that much experience. And, uh, but anyways, I decided to interrupt this nine line and say, Hey, listen, potential VBID and I give them a, uh, what we have is a MGRS or the Milgrid reference system of, you know, 10 digit numbers to kind of, uh, pinpoint your location within a meter, you know, on the earth or whatever. And so I did give them a six digit grid, which is good to about a hundred meters square meter of the next intersection where this, uh, VBID was going. So he copies down and I was tr- going to try to get a robot, uh, with, they have a little bit better fidelity sensors, um, with their, uh, uh, pod that they have. Um, they can tell stuff, you know, a lot easier than I can with the sniper pod at where I'm at in the stack. And they can also, they have hellfires on board. So if it were a VBID, they can literally just turn and shoot. And usually robots are at the bottom ish of the stack, uh, in that case. So there was no stack deconfliction with any of the other players. And anyway, so pass them a six digit grid. And, um, he copies down the six digit grid and says, Hey, can you say again, the last three and about that time, uh, this vehicle had veered off, uh, by that intersection went under it or through a ditch around a building. And, uh, there was an Iraqi, uh, 
group of Humvees and some armored vehicles that were in a line. And this vehicle turns around the corner and I saw a bunch of dudes that were standing there, uh, you know, chatting and smoking and whatever. And they just started running in every direction. And then this uh, vehicle, this minivan goes right into the middle of it and blows up. And it's like a 2000 pound bomb explosion in this middle of this Iraqi column of, you know, Humvees and armored vehicles. And it, I mean, it blows like, it's like a whole city block blows apart. And, um, you know, the radios went completely silent and we, uh, so we, we ended up doing some other stuff. We ended up dropping a little bit later on that sortie. Um, but we took that lesson back and, which was really crazy to watch. Um, we thought, well, what if we just, you know, what if we just rolled in on it with a 54 and we did the math. And from the time the garage door opened to the time that VBID detonated was about 40 seconds. Um, so for us and where we're at, that's, I mean, the time of fall of the weapon is probably around about that. So your weapon would be impacting that VBID right about the time he makes it to the armored column, which, you know, what wasn't really going to work. So, um, and the time needed to coordinate a nine line, uh, to verify the readback, to do all this sort of stuff is just, it just takes kind of a, a while to do you know? Um, so he said, Hey, listen, um, we need to be able to do this like really fast. How are we going to be able to target this, you know, quick. And it, it was more of a matter of like, you know, what do we look for? Uh, and then how do we pass off that targeting if we can't do it ourselves and how do we clear out the stack? So, uh, Cruz became a lot better with constantly thinking about how you're going to employ against, uh, moving targets like VBIDs or et cetera. And then we ended up, you know, later on, we ended up dropping on quite a few VBIDs and, uh, you know, worked out really well. Uh, we never dropped on a refugee vehicle, uh, which I was always worried about uh, back because occasionally uh, in the middle of a firefight, you'd just see a minivan drive through the streets and weaving in and out, you know, and driving erratically. And it looked a lot like a VBID, but it would be just somebody who's just trying to get the hell out of there, you know? Um, so it, it was a really delicate situation. And sometimes you had to rely on the ground force to be able to protect themselves uh, because your the fidelity of information that you were uh, trying to make a decision with was a little limited, you know, at times. So, um, so, so that was like the third story to kind of frame the reference of shit that was happening. It was just every day. It was always something like crazy like that, you know? So you can't help but but sort of wonder listening to your <clears throat> your description of those uh, of your actions in those um missions you know sort of looking at what the you know the the screen is is showing you in the cockpit from the pod about the fact that it's it's quite disconnected isn't it that one of one of the one of the things that i think um fighter pilots of a of, of old have, have talked about is the fact that you know maybe maybe if you bfm and shoot someone with a gun it, it's a bit personal but otherwise it's quite clinical um uh, did do you was there a part of you that felt like the whole thing was a bit surreal was it strange to watch someone die on a on a video camera in, in the cockpit yep um it definitely definitely was and the the weird thing kind of about that, like the VBID or any other thing that we saw was that you can look at it in the pot or you can just like look outside and you're seeing the same thing, you know, seeing this huge cloud of smoke or, or whatever it is. And uh, on a personal note, one of the things um, 
probably get criticized for saying this, but one of the things that I was thinking about uh, when I went into the deployment, like everybody were to think about it was, you know, what does it feel like uh, to take somebody's life? You know, what does it feel like to kill somebody on the ground? And I, I wondered that for a while. And then uh, once that started happening, you know, fairly uh, frequently, uh, with ISIS, you know, and it really didn't feel like anything. Uh, and it felt uh, like you say, kind of clinical of that, Hey, this is war. This is our job. We got to do it. And like, you know, we've, as the United States and, uh, ISIS, they've made the decision to go to war against each other. It, it's already, you know, it's already done. So it's, uh, I think that most people, at least in our squadron, felt like um, that, you know, this is war. This is what um, what we're responsible to prosecute. And the United States and its coalition needs people uh, that are going to be able to do it, you know. And uh, and it's not it's not a time to just say, well, you know, I, I just can't do it, you know, or, or, or whatever. This isn't for me, you know, then, you know, you're uh, – you just gotta, just gotta do it. And it was, yeah, I mean, it was a little surreal. There, there's, there's a lot of interesting things you can see in the, uh, you know, in the target pod, um, that you, people don't see every day, I think, you know, and, um, and sometimes it's not even like actually killing somebody, you know, with killing somebody with one bomb or, you know, you're, you know, you're seeing people that are, you know, split in half and all kinds of weird, you know, stuff like that, uh, you know, on a pretty, pretty regular basis, I would say. And, you know, different parts of people are still wiggling around and stuff. And um, so all, all of those things are kind of, they're all just part of combat, you know, and they're all part of war. And you have to look at it, just like you said, clinically, like a doctor that, you know, this is your profession to deal with, you know, blood and guts and you just got to do it. So, um, I think everybody had that outlook. Now I'm not going to say that it was any way, shape or form, uh, the same as, you know, your 19 or 20 year old specialist or, you know, corporal out there who's shooting someone with his M nine, you know, point blank. Um, I'm sure that's a completely different experience that I haven't, uh, experienced before. Um, so, 